If you will, turn in your Bibles to the second chapter of Revelation, beginning in verse 12, as we continue our study through the Word. So you'll remember that John is on the island of Patmos, and he is there worshiping the Lord. It is Sunday, the Lord's Day, and suddenly the Lord shows up behind him and, and declares, I am the Alpha and the Omega, and he turns and and he receives a, a vision now. He sees the risen Lord magnified, glorified. And, and the Lord tells him to write down the things that he has seen, the things that are, and the things that will yet be. And, and so in that first chapter, we have this glorious portrait of Jesus Christ that is given. His eyes are Flames of fire, his hair and countenance, white, shining, bright as the sun, a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth and, and clothed in a robe and gold braid across his chest, his feet like burnished brass that had been in a furnace. And, and John records that for us. And the Lord tells him that he's going to write seven letters to the seven churches. The seven churches actually existed. They were seven churches in, in John's day, and, and they are there located in Turkey, and, and the Lord has something to say to each of these seven churches, and so in chapters two and three, we have recorded for us those seven letters that, that John sends out to those churches. Now, we've talked about the seven letters and, and how they make up a panoramic view of church history, that each one of these churches in order is going to represent a slice of the church age. Now, the church age began when the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost and the gospel was preached and 3,000 people accepted the Lord and the church was born. Kapow! The church age ends with a kapow. We go kapow to kapow. The, the other kapow is when the Lord comes back for the rapture of the church. And kapow, we are all going to be gone and raptured. And so two amazing events that, uh, that mark, that bookend the, the church age. And so... From the time of Pentecost, we have started to see the various different slices. Each church is representative of an age, an epoch, a time period in church history. So they were actual churches. Jesus is going to minister to the actual circumstances that were going on. They're going to be representative of a church age, and then they're also going to be a typology. And in that typology, they are present throughout the entire church age. So we're going to look at them in three different ways. Now, you remember we started with the church of Ephesus. Now, typology, the church of Ephesus represented the loveless church. You remember that they had a lot of good works, busy, active church going on, but they had left their first love. And so when we see that typologically, it is a church that's busy but falls into a dead orthodoxy of works and the spirit and the life of the church is not there because love is not there. And you remember how the Lord told them to remember, to repent and to return back to those first works again. Now, the slice of history 
The day of Pentecost comes around the year A.D. 33. That's when the Lord is crucified and raptured. And so the day of Pentecost begins then. And this first period, the apostolic period, that's what the first period is, ends when the last apostle dies. Now, the apostle John is the last living apostle. And so he dies right about 100 A.D. So Church of Ephesus represented the loveless church and the apostolic and church ends in 100 AD. The second church that we looked at, that's the church of Smyrna. And Smyrna represented the persecuted church. Now, in history, the time period of the persecuted church starts with the end of the apostolic age, so it starts at 100 AD, and it's going to go all the way to 313 AD. Now, in 313, that's when Constantine, you'll remember that Constantine sees a vision of a, uh, of a cross that's on fire, and he, he is battling for Rome to take over Rome and to become the emperor. And Constantine realizes that that's a Christian emblem, believes that God is telling him that he's to fight under the banner of Jesus Christ and to go in and he is going to be victorious. When he does in fact become victorious, then Constantine then issues an edict of tolerance. An edict of tolerance removes religious persecution. And so suddenly now for this past 200 years, where there has been incredible persecution to the church, it instantly ends with that edict of tolerance. It then becomes the church, the, the, emperor, the empire, the Roman Empire's religion. And so we are going to see that in a single moment, Christianity goes from persecuted and behind closed doors to suddenly now it is elevated up to be the national religion of the Roman Empire. And so that was the end of the persecution happened in, in 313. So Smyrna, the persecuted church, the second period of time. And, and we see here that with the persecuted church, there was no criticism to them. It was only just simply remain faithful, even unto death. And and so the typology, the epoch, and the actual church itself. As we come to this third church now, we see that this third church is Pergamum. Now, Pergamum is different than the other two cities. Both Ephesus and Smyrna, they were port cities. They had a thriving commercial enterprise because of the fact of their harbor. You would have trade routes by road, and then if you've got a harbor connecting trade routes, you are going to have a tremendously commercially successful city. Both Ephesus and Smyrna were port cities. Pergamum is not a port city. It's about 15 miles in from the actual coast itself. It sat on this huge plain, and in the middle of the plain rose uh, above the plain this, this land mass that is conical in its shape, and it rose a thousand feet above the floor of the valley. And so Pergamum sat up on top of, of this. It was said to be a majestic city that, that overlooked uh, the entire valley. It was a city that had a great university. It was a a place of learning. It had great commercial enterprise as well. But what it was known for 
was its library. It had the second largest library in the entire world. The largest library in the world was Alexandria, was in Egypt. But Pergamum had the second largest library. It had over 200,000 books that were in this library. Now, it was said that, that Alexandria, there in Egypt, where the largest library was, and Pergamum, they got into a little tuft with each other. When Pergamum tried to steal Alexandria's librarian and bring him over to Pergamum. And Alexandria got so mad at Pergamum for trying to take their library that they stopped supplying them with paper. Now, papyrus was made there in Egypt and wouldn't give them any more paper. And so here they are trying to build their library without paper. So it was in Pergamum where they started to experiment writing on animal skins and actually perfected parchment. And parchment may even come from the name Pergamum, have a root source connection to them. But in addition to that, what Pergamum was known for was uh, the temples that they had. They were a very religious city, a very religious city. Remember that those temples, the temples to all the various different gods, Zeus and, and all the other gods, Athena and, and whatnot, they always had the, the priestesses, the, the temple prostitution that was going on. And so their city was a city that was known for sexual immorality because of all of the temples. In addition to the temples to the various different gods that they had there in Sparta, they also had three temples to the emperors. Remember how the emperors started to demand that they be worshipped as gods? And so now in Pergamum, they had built three different temples to emperor worship in addition to the rest. The issue in the typology of the church of Pergamum is, is that they are a city of compromise, a church in compromise. They were compromising from the moral standards of their faith. They hadn't stopped going to church. They hadn't stopped reading their Bibles. They hadn't stopped worshiping. But they were intolerant of the sexual immorality and were partaking even of it themselves. And and we see that the Lord now is going to come and speak to, to this compromise that has taken place within the church. So we begin here in this 12th verse, Revelation chapter 2. And it says unto the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. It's interesting that in the portrait of Christ, there is a slice that, of identification that comes with each of these seven letters. And we see that the way that the Lord identifies himself is specific to each of the churches that he writes these letters to. Now, remember that the first church in Ephesus, it spoke of the one who hold, held the stars and walked among the lampstands. That talks about fellowship and communion. Remember that Ephesus was a church that had planted the other churches and had evangelized the surrounding area. It spoke of fellowship with the Lord and abiding with Jesus. And in fact, that is the rebuke that he gives to them about the abiding. To the church of Pergamum, we see, I mean, to uh, Smyrna, we see that he represents himself now um, as the one 
who was dead and is now alive. Now, that is significant because that was an identification of the city itself. We see that Smyrna was a city that had been destroyed and laid in ruins for 300 years and then suddenly was rebuilt and restored back to glory again. And so their city was a city that they identified that once had been dead and had now come back to life. And so that we see the identification of that revelation of Jesus specific to that city. Now, to the church here of Pergamum, notice that he says that he who has the sharp two-edged sword. The two-edged sword means judgment. And we see that God now is talking to the church that is in compromise. And he is telling them that they are going to need to repent uh, or judgment is going to come upon them. And so we see the revelation of the two-edged sword to the church that is there in Smyrna, in Pergamum. In verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. We see that once again, the Lord begins by telling us that he knows our works. He sees uh, the struggle that we are in every single day. Every single one of us, we battle between the flesh and the spirit on a daily basis. And the minute that we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior and we have the indwelling of the Spirit, a civil war starts inside of us. We have the flesh and the Spirit that are warring against one another. And that is an ongoing daily basis. It doesn't matter how victorious you were over the flesh yesterday there is a fresh battle that is going to happen. And, and that battle begins every single morning. It starts right when the alarm goes off in the morning. And there is your spirit going, oh, happy day. Get up, let's worship. Get into the word of God. It's a new day, new blessings, new mercies. Let's go and see what God has for us. And, and the flesh is going, give me a break. <laughs> 10 more minutes. Just give me 10 more minutes. And have you ever noticed uh, how comfortable a bed is in the morning? <laughs> it's like it can be uncomfortable at night. You're trying to get comfortable. You're trying to get to sleep. But, but after eight hours of being in there, you've got it just right. <laughs> just give me 10 more minutes. Just 10 more, just 10 more minutes. And there is the battle that begins right uh, there. And, and that battle continues the entire day all the way to the time that you're going to close your eyes when you're going to just pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for... <laughs> We're going to pray. You ever tried praying when you're laying in your bed? Oh, Lord, I'm, gonna, I'm just going gonna, gonna to pray when I... <laughs> And there it is, the battle between the, the flesh and the spirit every single day. From ding to dong, it's bookended by the moment that you wake up. And we're going to have that battle all the way till we breathe our last breath. And then that battle will be over. And then the flesh never again. We're never going to have to battle the flesh ever again. But here's what Jesus says. He says, I, I know your works. I see you battling. And do you know what he's saying? I see every single time you get it right. I see every single time you get it right, every single time you make a choice to, to put the, the flesh, to crucify the flesh and to follow after the spirit. And, and the Lord says, I know your works. Notice that he doesn't say, I know your failures. 
I saw, oh, that's a failure. Oh, that's a failure. Come here, 17 times. You failed yesterday here. I want to talk to you about how many times the flesh is winning over. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I know your failures. I know your works. I know how many times exactly you are succeeding. And see, God is for you. He's not against you. We're to go from glory to glory. He says, hey, let's build off of the victories from yesterday. Let's add some more victories today and let's continue to grow and let's continue to learn how to walk by faith and not by sight and to have mastery over your flesh. I know your works. He says, I know your works and, and I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. <laughs> Their city was so wicked because of all of the temples, because of the sexual immorality that was rampant in the city that, that here it's referred to as Satan's throne. <laughs> Can you imagine living in a city that's so wicked <laughs> that it's identified by its wickedness uh, to where sexual immorality is, is rampant, where it would just be on like, you know, posters and billboards and trucks that would be driving up and down while you're trying to eat dinner and, and all of the, the various different ways. Well, that is exactly the kind of city that Pergamum was. And he says, you know, it's not easy. It's not easy to live in an environment like that. It's not easy to live in an environment where sin has got such a stronghold, where it is so tolerated and even merchandised and marketed. I remember when we first came, when Amber and I first came to Las Vegas, and we were sitting down with Pastor John Michaels, and, and Pastor John Michaels was telling us about the city, and he says, I want you to know that, that Las Vegas has one of the lowest crime rates of any major city in the country. And I was like, Wow, that is awesome. He goes, and the reason why is because nothing's illegal in this city. <laughs> you can't break the law here if you try to break the law uh, here. And so we, we have got a low crime rate here in this city here. But, uh, but also talking about what it takes to, to thrive in this city as a Christian. He said this. He said, this city, because there is temptation that is everywhere. He says, if you have got a problem with women, if you have a problem with gambling, or you have a problem with alcohol, this is not a city where you can stay. You have to leave this city because this city will chew you up and spit you out if those are your weaknesses. Here we see that in Pergamum was a city that that merchandised uh, evil, that its trade was in these temples. And, and though they were commercially successful and though they were a scholarly city that boasted of their education and of their high culture, they, they had another side to them that was completely depraved, that was given over to the carnality and to sexual immorality. He says it's not easy for a Christian to be living in that kind of an environment. I know your works. I see you battling. I see you struggling. He says, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, 
Even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And, and he says, and, and you've held fast to, to my name. You, you haven't lost your Christianity. You don't deny that you're a Christian. You, you've held fast to it. You're still reading the word of God. You're still praying and, and you're still attending church service. Even in the face of persecution, persecution here that had come all the way to death. And he mentions here Antipas as a martyr. We don't have any information on Antipas except what is listed here. But we see the exhortation that they have held fast. In verse 14, he says, But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. We see here it is this leniency now towards sexual immorality that Jesus is talking about. Here he says that you hold the doctrine of Balaam. And he references when Balak now was taught by Balaam to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. You remember it's recorded in Numbers chapter 22 and through 25 the full story and it's recounted there but the children of Israel were getting ready to enter into the promised land. You remember that Moses was allowed to bring them up to the border, but not allowed to enter in. They had had their victories as they had fought their way through, and now they're sitting just outside of Jericho on the other side of the Jordan River. That was Moab. The king of Moab was Balak. And he had watched as, as the Lord had slew the Egyptian army, the most fiercest uh, army on the face of the earth and he had watched as the children of Israel had marched through the other territories and gotten victories all around and and now he wakes up and here are the children of Israel sitting in his country Moab and he devises a plan he he goes and he sends for Balaam Balaam was this prophet for hire and his plan was this he thought to himself if I can get this prophet to come and to curse these people, and then I attack them with my army, maybe between the cursing and the attack, we can drive them out of our country. And so he sends some princes, and he sends them to go find Balaam and to have Balaam come. And the princes come to Balaam, and they said that King Balak wants to honor you, means he wants to make you rich, <laughs> He wants you to come and all you have to do is just put a curse on these people. And, and Balaam says, let me sleep on this tonight. I'll get back to you in the morning. And the Lord visits them in the night and tells them that he's not allowed to curse them, that they're his people and, and that he can't go. In the morning, he tells them, I'm sorry, I can't go with you. Please tell the king that, that I cannot. This is what God has said to me. And so they go back and they tell Balak that. But Balak is a determined man. He's a desperate man. He sees the, the children of Israel encamped without number before him. And he says, okay, every man has a price. You go and you tell him that I will make him rich. No, like really rich. Not rich, rich, but like Bill Gates rich. Uh, now, if he will come, we will open up the treasures of our nation and we will bless this guy if he comes and he curses them. So he sends more princes of higher status uh, with a bigger offer to Balaam to come and to curse the Israelites. Well, they come and they present their offer. And 
Once again, Balaam says, let me, let me go and talk to the Lord and find out what the Lord has to say, and, and I'll tell you in the morning. And that night, the Lord tells him that, that he's allowed to go, but he's only allowed to do exactly what the Lord tells him to do. And so Balaam is all excited because he's been promised a lot of money. On his way, you'll remember, that's when he runs into the, his donkey stops and there's an angel drawn sword before him and, and the donkey finally talks to him. And it's a reminder to Balaam, not one word more, not one word less. You can go, but you do exactly as I say. So he gets there and Balak comes and brings him up onto a hill and shows him all the Israelites that are camped down there. And, and he says, okay, curse him. He says, okay, we'll build seven altars. We need seven bulls. We make our sacrifices. And then I will pronounce whatever it is that the Lord has to say. And so they make their sacrifices. And, and now it's time. And Balaam stands over the people. And out of his mouth comes a big blessing on the nation of Israel. And Balak's like, ah, what are you doing? I brought you here to curse them, not to bless them. And, and Balaam says, didn't I tell you that I can only say what God allows me to say? And this is what he said. And Balak's like, okay, okay, okay. Maybe if we change your view, a view change. And he goes, okay, off the hill, onto the field. Let's go down. We can only see some of them instead of all of them. Maybe it's because you were looking at all of them. Maybe you're just looking at some of them. You can curse those, and the curse will work its way through the rest of the people. So they go down, seven more altars, seven more bulls. And there's Balaam, ready, set, go. And he blesses them again the second time. Balaam's like, Oh, you're killing me, Smalls. And so he says, okay, one more time. <clears throat> Let's just, three strikes, you're out. That's it. I'm going to quit afterwards. But just one last time, same thing. Seven altars, seven bulls, seven sacrifices. And afterwards, he finally, he blesses them again for the third time. And Balak is done. He is done. And he says to Balaam, he says, it's too bad that your God didn't want you to be rich because I was going to make you a rich man. And Balaam loves the money. And there it is, the jackpot. But he, how can he get his hands on the jackpot? Because he's being paid to curse him and God won't let him curse him. And he goes, you know, I can't curse them. God won't let me do that. But I can tell you how you can bring God's judgment down on his own people. And Balak says, do tell. <laughs> he is a jealous God. He's a jealous God. If his people go after other gods, God will surely bring judgment upon his own people. Here's what you need to do, Balak. Take your prettiest women from Midian and dress them all up, and get the music playing, and invite uh, the men to come and to offer their sacrifices uh, to the gods and to lie with these women. And when the men go after these false gods through these women, God will certainly judge them. And so that's exactly what happens. And so the Midian women come, and the Israelite men join together and God comes in and he brings a great judgment. But here it says that this church in Pergamum, what had they done? They had offered up to eat 
things, sacrifice to idols. Those were the sacrifices to the, in the temples and to commit sexual immorality, to engage now with these priestesses, the very thing that God had judged in the book of Numbers, the nation of Israel. And he says, and thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, you'll remember that there were the deeds of the Nicolaitans. This now we saw in the first letter to Ephesus, but here is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. We have the doctrines of Balaam and we have the doctrines of the Nicolaitans, the false teachings. He says in verse 16, repent, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And so here we see that this is the view of our Lord when it comes to tolerance. Simply repent, simply turn back. There is always the temptation when we are in a morally corrupt environment to not stay firm and fixed to, to the integrity of God's word, but to compromise. We see today our culture is telling us tolerance is the highest virtue. And, and yet we see that the Lord has no part of tolerance whatsoever. He is the one that has, divide, that, that has declared what is morally correct and what is morally incorrect. And we are not to shade it, change it. We are not to, to in any way, shape, or form modify it. We are to love those that are caught up in sin, but we are to not tolerate or to change our stance on what is right and what is wrong. He says, repent. There is a, a time that God gives to us to repent, but we are never to misconstrue that time where God is asking us to turn and repent to God's tacit approval upon our sin. We are always in danger when we are heading away from the Lord. Anytime we try and make sin a pet in our life, anytime we try and domesticate sin in our life, put a collar on it, a leash, and give it a name, and now make it a household pet. You cannot domesticate sin. This was a church now that was guilty of complacency. We see it was a church of compromise. And ultimately, we see that compromise will lead to death. You are not complacent with cancer. When you discover that you have cancer, it is a radical approach that you need to take. You need to remove every single bit of the cancer. You cannot say and be happy with, we got most of the cancer out. Cancer is the equivalent of leaven. Leaven is sin. A little bit of leaven does what? Leavens the entire lump. A little bit of cancer will spread throughout your entire body until it destroys the body. A little bit of sin that's allowed and given permission to reside in your life will expand in your life and ultimately will seek to destroy you spiritually. And so, here we see repent or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against him with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. So here again, we see Jesus. He's not going to argue the point. 
If you have an ear to hear, this is the word of God. God does not want us to compromise upon his standard. God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? The standards of the world shift and move all over the place. But God tells us as the church that we are not to shift and to move off of the standard of righteousness that he has established. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you have an ear to hear. He says to he who overcomes, I will give you some of the hidden manna to eat. Now, here is the promise for obedience. Someone who overcomes is someone who obeys. Whenever you obey God, there's a blessing in it for you. Amen? God only tells you to do the things that are going to be good for you. And so anytime you do what God tells you to do, you are going to be blessed by that. And, and so he says to you overcome. To you who will not change God's standard, will not adopt the world's standard, will not mix it in, will not become fuzzy, will not become soft. Uh, he says to you is going to be given the hidden manna. Remember manna? Manna was for the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness. And every single day that manna would come down like dew and it would be on the ground. And every single day they would scoop it up, harvest it, and they would eat. It would sustain them physically for the 40 years that they were in the wilderness. Jesus says, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven in the same way that manna descended down and then they were able to partake of it. Jesus Christ himself descended down. And when we partake of him, then spiritually, we are going to be healthy and vibrant. He said, I'm the vine, you're the branch. And when a branch is plugged into the vine, all of the sustenance for that branch flows into it. It doesn't have its own root. It feeds off of the vine itself. And so when we abide in Christ, what are we doing? We are eating of that hidden manna. We are sustained spiritually. We are vibrant and vital. And so here to he who overcomes, to the person that doesn't compromise, to the person that continues to hold fast, he says that he will give to them the hidden manna to eat. And he says, I will give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So a white stone. You're going to be given a white stone. Back in those days, when you would go to vote, you would have a white stone and a black stone. A white stone said yes, and a black stone said no. A white stone said you are accepted. A black stone said you are rejected. Even to this day, when you go to join a club and someone votes against you, it's called being what? Black ball. Someone put a black stone. You try to join the club, they put a black stone. Hey. <laughs> when you get to heaven, you want to join heaven, they don't go, oh, here's a black stone. <laughs> You're not blackballed out of heaven. You're instead, what are you going to get? You're going to get a white stone. The acceptance of God. You're going to be welcomed uh, into the kingdom. And so you're going to be handed a white stone. And on this white stone, a name is going to be written. It's a new name. And as we close our study right here, that's what I want to talk about for a minute as we close. Is this the new name. It says a new name that no one's going to know except the person that, that it's being given to. Did you ever notice in the scriptures how God changes people's names? And, and he changes their names as he changes their relationship and their character and their calling. And so this new name represents a new relationship with them that is reflective of the work uh, that he is calling them to and of the character change that is in them. You remember that Abram 
had his name changed to Abraham. Now, Abram means high father. That was the name Abram. But Abraham, the name that God changes it to, means a father of multitude. And so the promise that through him all the peoples of the earth would be blessed and the multitude that would come forth from Abraham. Sarai, his wife, also had her name changed from Sarai to Sarah. Sarai means my princess, my princess. But Sarah means mother of nations. And so here, the new calling in her life and the name change now that reflects that. You remember that Jesus changed Simon's name. Simon, I'm going to change your name. Your new name is Peter. And Peter means a pebble. It means a, a little stone. Jesus is the rock. Peter, you're a little pebble. You're a chip off the old block. <laughs> That's all you are. Just a pebble, though. He gives him a, a, a new name. Jacob is somebody also in the Old Testament that we see was given a new name. You remember the patriarchs, Abraham, and his son is Isaac. And Isaac marries Rebekah, and the patriarchal line is going to continue. But Rebekah can't have any children. They are praying before the Lord, seeking the Lord's face. And the Lord now opens up Rebekah's womb. And, and you remember that in her womb, in her pregnancy, that there was all of this stirring within it. And, and the Lord showed her that she had twins, that there were two nations that were within her. But also the Lord showed her that the younger is going to be served by the older. That the older is going to serve the younger. You remember that at birth the first child is born and, and he comes out and he is Harry. So they named him Harry. <laughs> Esau means uh, Harry. And, uh, and so he comes out first and, and here is this Harry's son. And, and as this Harry's son comes out, there's a little hand holding on to his foot that emerges out uh, also. And, uh, and that uh, is the second son, the younger son. And so as he's holding on to his older brother's foot. I think they were trying to get out first. <laughs> the name Jacob. Jacob means heel catcher, holding on to the heel. And so they named him Harry and heel catcher. And that was Jacob and Esau. But the name heel catcher was also indicative of his character. You see, Jacob was a schemer. And he was a plotter and a manipulator. And that was who his character was. And Jacob was an appropriate name for him. And so the patriarchal birthright, Abraham, Isaac, and it should have been the firstborn, which would have been Esau in that patriarchal line. Esau was a man of the field, a hunter. He was a sportsman, and, and he was always gone. And, and his dad used to love to hear the stories of him out hunting and used to love to eat the game that he, he brought back. And, and there was no doubt that Esau was, was Isaac's favorite. It said that, that Joseph was smooth and, and frail and smaller, and he stayed around with his mom in the kitchen. <laughs> Kind of a mama's boy. <laughs> and so mom had her favorite and dad had her favorite and we had some serious dysfunction going on in the family uh, in the raising up uh, of them. 
But Esau, uh, Esau didn't care much for the things of the Spirit. And, and Jacob, he was interested in that patriarchal promise that God had given to Abraham and passed down to Isaac, and, and he wanted it. But it had gone to Esau. And one day Esau had come back from hunting. He had been without food for a long time and he was famished. <laughs> and Jacob had just finished filming a kitchen episode of Famous Recipes for Lentils. And there it was, the pot of stew was out there and the bread and it was all smelling so good. And Esau tells him, hey, man, I would kill for, for a bowl of that soup. Give me a bowl of that. And he says, you know, I'll give you all the soup that you want. If you'll just give me that patriarchal blessing. And Esau says, fine, I don't care. I don't even know what that is, actually. So you can have it. And he says, promise it to me. And he says, I promise. And he gives him all the, the stew and all the bread that you can. He, Jacob finds a moment of leverage and, and he connives uh, the patriarchal blessing out of his brother. Fast forward and, and now it is time for Isaac to be home with the Lord. And there is the double portion of blessing that goes on the older son. And so Isaac calls to Esau and says, I... I feel like my time is short. I want you to go out and go hunt me something fine, some great game for me, make a nice dish for me, and when you bring it to me, I'll give you the double portion of blessing. Rebecca is listening to this, and, and she immediately goes now to Jacob and, and tells Jacob, Jacob, here's what I need you to do. Go to the flock and go get two goats, and I am going to cook up the, the goat the way that you're Father loves it the most. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to dress you in Esau's clothes. You're going to bring the dish in, and he's going to think that you're Esau, and he'll lay hands on you, and, and he will bless you. Rebecca was trying to help God out. <laughs> because remember that she had been told that the, that the older is going to serve the younger, and so she's doing everything she can to promote her son. But I do have to just give you a caveat. God doesn't ever need our help, amen? <laughs> so if you're tempted today to help God move something forwards in your life, I just want you to wait on the Lord and don't help him out. And so Rebecca devises this plan, and, and Joseph's, un, I mean, Jacob's uncomfortable with it, and, and he says, Mom, he's going to know <laughs> that it's me. He's going to touch me. I'm smooth-skinned, and, and then he's going to curse me instead of blessing blessing me. This is not going to go well. And she says, son, do what I tell you. <laughs> he goes out and he gets the goat and she prepares it, but she takes the skin of the goat and puts it onto his arms and onto the back of his neck. <laughs> Which makes me think, how hairy was Harry? That <laughs> 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 she's going to, he's going to touch Go pelt and go, oh, my son, my son. <laughs> and so he gets his costume, goes in with the food, and, and, and Esau's a little, I mean, and, and Isaac is a little suspicious over all of that, but finally his eyesight is terrible, and he believes it's, it's Esau, and he gives the double portion of blessing on him. 
A few minutes later, in comes Isaac with the game and tells dad he's going to cook it and everything. He's going to say, what? what? And he discovers that his brother cheated him out of the double portion blessing that was his. (laughs) And Esau, in typical brother fashion, says, as soon as dad dies, (laughs) you're dead. (laughs) (laughs) I'm coming for you. Have a nice day. (laughs) At which point now, Jacob has to get out of Dodge. And so mom says, hey, my brother Laban lives in another country. Go visit him and and you can stay there. He comes to Laban. As he comes to Laban, Laban has some daughters. And Rachel is a knockout. And Jacob falls for, for Rachel and just First, love at first the sight, one of these whoop, 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 and stars and hearts coming out of his eyes. And he is just smitten. But the problem is he's got no money. He, he, he's got nothing to offer. He's, he's wanted by his brother, and he's on the run, and he's got nothing with him. But Laban says, hey, you know what? I can see that you really love my daughter. Now, Laban is as big of a Jacob as Jacob. <laughs> Only he's older and more experienced at it. And, and so Jacob is going to get Jacob by uh, Laban here. And, and so he says, you know, you don't, have, you don't have anything to offer, but here's what I'll tell you to do. You can have my daughter, Rachel, in exchange for seven years of service. Serve me seven years. I need a good foreman. You show me that you're a good foreman. At the end of seven years, you can have. It says that that those seven years felt like days to to Jacob. Oh, Rachel. (laughs) Yes. And finally, it was the day of the wedding. And in those days, the bride is wrapped up head to toe with veils and dress and everything. And they have the celebration and, and into the tent that night. And, uh, and Jacob has been celebrating and drinking. And he goes in, he consummates the marriage uh, with Rachel. And he wakes up in the morning <laughs> And it's Leah, his other daughter that was there. Now, Leah, it says, was not attractive at all. Rachel was the sister that got the looks. Leah was the other one. It says that she had cow eyes, uh, you know, and everything. And so, you know, I mean, Jacob's leaning over to give her a kiss in the morning, and there's Leah, you know, in in the bed. And he comes out of that tent, and he's like, Laban! And and Laban says, oh, he says, hey, did you have a good night last night? <laughs> what did you do? You tricked me. He says, I didn't. I said, oh, did, you, did I forget to mention this to you? He says, we have a custom that you can't marry the younger daughter until the older daughter's married. I thought you knew that. <laughs> what are we going to do, Jacob? You already married her. And, Hey, you know what? If you work another seven years for me, you can have Rachel. Only, you know what? I won't make you wait seven years. You can marry her now. I'll prepay you, Rachel, for the seven years you're going to have. And that will solve your problem. And suddenly, Jacob has two wives now, two sisters. And 
And you can read about how that goes. But anytime you see polygamy in the, in the Bible, it doesn't go well. I want you to know there's huge family issues going on with it. And, and then finally, Jacob is trying to leave Laban. Laban just keeps his hooks. And he finally is trying to leave. And, and Laban decides that he's not going to quite let him go. So he tries to escape. But as he's escaping Laban, Esau is coming now. His dad is dead. And Esau is coming with armed men. And so Jacob's troubles uh, now uh, are compounding upon him. The Bible says that what you sow, you will reap. And now Jacob is uh, reaping all of his conniving and his manipulation is all coming to roost. He departs from the camp and he crosses over the river. And it's a time between him and the Lord and the angel of the Lord meets them there, and they start to wrestle, and Jacob wrestles with them. He is at this place of desperation where he has been manipulating everything in his entire life. Now, you remember Jacob's ladder in his dream. God had promised to him that, uh, that he, through him, is going to come the blessings. But, man, while he wanted the promises of God, he's been walking in his flesh, manipulating everything his entire life. And and God needs to get a hold of him. If he's going to be a patriarch through which the blessing is going to come down, he cannot be a carnal man. And now it's all coming to rest. And Jacob says, I will not depart unless you bless me. And so the Lord dislocates his hip and gives him a limp. And Jacob is at a point of brokenness and a point of humility. To where now he's ready to let God be God. That I'll do it your way. I won't do it my way anymore. And so God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. Israel, one who wrestled with God. That's one, but also another way of understanding that is governed by God now. Is one who is done fighting and submitted now to the will of God. And God gives him a new name in recognition of that new calling, new nature, Israel. I want you to know that God has a new name for every single one of us. Every single one of us gets a new name. You get a white stone of acceptance and and a new name. And your new name is going to reflect your identity in Christ. It's going to reflect your relationship with the Lord and your character with the Lord. It is nice to know that our reputations in heaven <laughs> will be forgotten. That we will have new names uh, that go with us. Uh, and that each and every one of us uh, is being forged and fashioned into that new person, that new man, that new woman, that God has a whole new name for you. You see, there's going to be a new heaven, and there's going to be a new earth. And we even get a new name. And that name is who God sees us to be right now. We oftentimes see our old name and our old nature and our failures, but, but that's not who God sees. And he is busy cultivating you in to that person that is worthy of that new name that he has for you.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the new name that, that you have for us. And God, I ask that you would help us, Lord, in our daily battle between the flesh and the spirit, Lord, that we would not give in to temptation, that we would not compromise in a culture of tolerance in a, in a city whose reputation is that for allowing absolute lawlessness. God, we ask that you would keep the fire burning bright and strong in our hearts and in our lives. We yield ourselves to you as Jacob yielded himself. And his name was now Israel, governed by God. God, we want to be governed by you. Mold us to the character of our new name. And it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. If you've never